Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Another way to support the podcast is by switching to Brave. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome or used Safari without even thinking, but it's time to upgrade to something better. With other browsers, ads and trackers follow your every move and slow down your loading speeds. The Brave browser is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all the trackers and spyware. So it works just like Chrome, except cleaner and faster. By using Brave, you protect yourself from surveillance. Many popular sites have over 100 trackers, and these trackers can collect your inferred sexual orientation, political views, religious beliefs, even your location, sometimes right up to your exact GPS coordinates. Brave is a privacy-focused browser that blocks all of this out of the box. It also blocks all those annoying banner ads and those commercials on YouTube. Brave even shows you how many ads and trackers you've blocked in your lifetime, and how much data and time you've saved by doing so. It's really satisfying. Switching to Brave is also super easy and quick. You can import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in Brave in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. All you have to do is go to brave.com slash and switch over. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to a new browser. Be ahead of the curve. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we are going to be talking again with writer Matthew Mather. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me back. So if you uh, hear a, a kind of a muffled sound, that is because uh, we are talking, we're in studio, which is wonderful to not be, uh, not have to be doing a meeting over Zoom or some other you know, Brave or Microsoft Teams or something. Uh, uh, we're actually in studio, but we're taking all of the precautions, socially distant, and we've got our... I'm now trapped in a room with John, though. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And I'm coughing in a really covid way. No, I'm not. But, but we're both uh, in N95 now. So it's, it's, this is uh, fascinating on many levels because, as uh, many of you know, if you've listened to the first interview with uh, Matthew Mather, that um, he writes cautionary tales, that he, he sort of takes... Uh, the these very kind of scary, terrifying scenarios, and uh, runs with a thread. You know, whether it be three um, D printers or deep fakes, uh, to all sorts of like AI kind of taking over and and killing us and all these various things. So, uh, yeah. So, I, I guess uh, the first question I had for you, which uh, we had said we were going to talk about Darknet, and definitely we'll we'll have to we'll we'll get to that, but. Um, you you drove me here. Uh, you picked me up, which was thank you so you don't much. Have your driver's license. That was so. And and I, we just got to talking about this. That you know, I'm I'm 46 years old, and I still don't have uh, my driver's license, which is uh, kind of funny. 
And you, but you do. So you're a, you're a grown up. <laughs> well, I said I said there's a cautionary tale in that in that story when I first got my driver's license. I'm 51 years old now, but I first got my driver's license quite quite late in life. So I can understand. Well, late-ish when I was when I was 23 at the end of college, um, <clears throat> and I had actually just gotten a job with the Formula One in Europe. Um, and part of our job was that we were supposed to drive around Europe in this Winnebago. But I was going with a friend of mine from college. He knew how to drive. I said, okay, you drive the Winnebago. We'll just live in this thing. It'll be fine. <clears throat> However, uh, about halfway through the first month when we were living in Belgium, he lost his driver's license. And it fell incumbent upon me to be the driver of our Winnebago across Europe. Um, however, I didn't have my driver's license at that point, so I had to rush back to North Carolina on a on a one week trip, go into the DMV, get my driver's license, driving a little old um, Camaro, you know, automatic. <clears throat> you know, really didn't know how to drive yet, but I got a driver's license because in America you can you can get driver's license very quickly. Um, it's one, you know, I think it's written in the Constitution, right? <laughs> I think, I think uh, being able to drive a car is written in the Constitution, according to what I've what I've what I've read. It's right behind the right to right to bear arms. Yeah. Anyway. So I go back to Europe with this newly minted thing, and I'd really never driven before. Got into this Winnebago, which is basically it was like a thirty-foot truck, standard, uh, and then had to drive from Belgium to uh, San Marino, Italy. Um, in between those two things, I don't know if you've looked at a map, but there's these things. That's called... like little winding roads going up and down mountains. Yeah, and... I was going to say there's the there's the Alps that are in between Belgium and 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 Italy on the other side. So. <clears throat> I ended up driving this truck through the Alps, um, which was exciting because my friend and, and I'm just still learning to drive. And I'm like, hey, do, do I shift up or down? And he's like, oh, when people are getting on the thing, you get out of the way. And so I was learning to drive while I was driving through the Alps. And the best part of this story, though, is that we ran out of gas in the Alps. We're coming into Lausanne and we are literally at the and it, it was getting it was pitch black. It was the middle of the night and we're coming across the top of these mountains. And I tell I turn to my friend Alec and I say, Hey, uh, I think uh, I think we're out of gas, you know. And for sure enough, we ran out of gas. But uh, what we did was it was an automatic thing, so I just flipped it into neutral, and we literally coasted from the top of the Alps all the way down for like half an hour, with no just completely silent, completely dark, you know, on these mountain you know these mountain roads. And then we coasted right into Lausanne, and then coasted right up to a gas station. It was awesome. So this sounds like a James Bond movie that's <laughs> starring Cheech and Chong, like. This oh, yeah. sounds like there. There were some Cheech and Chong moments, like yeah. when we we when we were in Spain, we uh, we bought a whole we bought like you know like a big brick of hash somewhere, and then we were, and this was just when the Schengen zone was just starting, and so we as we as we drove into Italy, uh, not Italy, we drove into France. We thought there was no borders or anything, um, but there were. There all of a sudden, there's like a bunch of border guards stopping us, and of course, we'd lost track of where we put this giant block of. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then they brought the dogs on board, you know, sniffing around. But of course, we were like, you know, just out of being teenage boys, we we're like twenty three, so the whole place was full of like stinky clothes and whatever. They never found it, you know. Yeah, they probably. I guess they probably were not looking for that. They're probably I, looking I for no like weapons and stuff from the Basques I, and things like that. I guess that was back in the, that was in nineteen ninety three, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, actually, I was working on the circuit in the Formula One when. Um, Ayrton Senna died. I was actually in San oh. Marino. Yeah. Wow. Son being loaded on the helicopter and all that. So That's amazing. I had a poster of Senna on my bedroom when I was a kid. Like, I had a poster of him, 
and I was really into uh, that was like a you know sport I guess if you can call it that that I followed a lot I watched it all the time but he was absolutely my favorite driver and when he died I just stopped watching it and I've never watched it since was I was I was so 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 bummed out and I just thought he was such an he was a sort of a Michael Jordan of Formula One. Like he was so interesting to watch. He would make races uh, just so unpredictable and interesting. He would do weird things. He, yeah, uh, he's just a, a fascinating driver. And there were there were two drivers that died that weekend. So, it, uh, wow, I guess yeah, I've like blanked that out. I don't remember the other one. The other one wasn't very wasn't very famous, but. Uh, yeah, they they that that year is an interesting one to work at the Formula One because they they changed they put chicanes in all over the the, uh, the straightaways and uh, Michael Schumacher was extremely upset and like they were yelling so we we got all like the inside gossip because we were working right there uh, I was working in the um, the paddock club uh, for the paddock club for uh, all sport yeah it was a really it was a really fun fun time to be living and working in Europe on the Grand Prix. I got a lot of good stories. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna yeah, bore you with all of freaky. them today. That's amazing. Yeah. So how did you, how did you come up with the idea for the novel Darknet? All right, switching gears. Well, Darknet is, uh, it was my fourth or fifth book I wrote. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I when I, I studied here in Montreal, studied at McGill, um, and I went to work for McCarson, which was the McGill Center for Intelligent Machines. Um, and I did some of my early work sort of in the AI and machine learning. Um, and so I always kind of had a foot in there. I had a, a lot of friends working in, in the, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, such as it was called, you know, back in the day in the eighties, it was like, uh, I mean, AI has been coming along for a long time. It's reaching a stage now where you can actually talk to things and it starts to seem like the stuff you see in science fiction films. But one of my gripes, and this is something that I try to include in all books is, you know, I, I see this in, in popular, you know, science fiction or culture and, and they portray things in a certain way. But one of my gripes with AI was that they always portrayed the AI as like it becomes a superhuman and then it, it also wants to it also has all these human characteristics, like, you know, it becomes an android and then it becomes like data and which becomes like it wants to become a person. Whereas the way that I saw AI and the way that I studied it is if you had an AI that became uh if not self-aware, then a, but able to beat the Turing test, which if you know what the Turing test sure. is, it's a, that it would not behave. It would not behave like a person. It would have different, you know, it would have goals that were programmed to it, but it wouldn't also, you know, it wouldn't be an individual. It would be this giant distributed thing that would be over networks. Um, uh, and so, what I tried to do in Darknet was to portray the rise of a large artificial intelligence system. Um, and in this case, uh, it was – I used – the basis of it was with uh, digital autonomous corporations, of which the most famous example actually is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, although we think of it as a currency, is actually an autonomous corporation that runs on the network, um, which was set up by famously by Satoshi Nakamoto, I think. Is that right? Yeah. He um, – who is a kind of a fictitious person, but he set up these rules for this thing. And then unleashed it on the net. Um, now it is managed by a group of people, but this thing is actually running itself. It's not like you'd be able to stop running it. And there's a few other examples of digital autonomous corporations that are running on the net. 
what makes these really interesting is you, once you set them up and set the rules for them, you don't need a human operator. Like this is like a, a piece of code that's running on the network that doesn't have people involved in it. It's not like a corporation with a board of directors or something. It's it's basically like this living piece of code that's operating on the net that keeps on morphing and growing and, and operating according to a certain set of rules. Um, and then the another idea behind that is if you incorporated such a digital autonomous corporation, corporations actually have rights the same as a person. So when we're talking about um, – Having, you know, when would an AI become a person? I say it's already happened. There's corporations that own digital autonomous corporate, the, the corporations operating on the net that are already legal people. And these things are operating. And then in the book, this is an AI that, that passes the test of being able to perform the Turing test. When you talk to it, it can talk back to you and you don't know that it's a machine talking to you. So the idea in the book is that there's a hedge fund, and I'd work with some hedge fund operators uh, like Bl uh, Blackwater, not Blackwater, but uh, a few of them anyway, operating in Connecticut. So I, I, I was working in the, in the cybersecurity field, and I thought, wouldn't it be really interesting? They're always trying to automate and trying to get faster and better at what they're doing. So I set up this, this, this extremely wealthy hedge fund, and they used an automated software to reply to emails for them, and then you could call up this place and then they would have this automated bot that would actually respond for you, which is what people are starting to do now. But as they kept on automating this thing, what happened was they started to use it to do more and more functions with the corporation. And all of a sudden, people started disappearing from the company. And, and what happens in the book, actually, is there, there's nobody left at the company. And it's just this automated system which is running, which is acquiring companies and calling people and doing contracts. But nobody knows there's only a machine left running this thing. And that's... Uh, that's the basis for Darknet. I've kind of given away half the book here, but our hero has to stop it because by the time you get into the meat of the book, this this autonomous corporation already controls about half of the wealth of the United States and it's just running amok, you know, and it's about to start wars and do all kinds of things. Yeah, what what just, I mean, a lot of things really creep me out about, uh, about this novel, but uh, and I, I don't think you've actually given away. Um, That's the setup. You haven't. You've you've basically just told the setup, which is what you would get in a movie preview. And I really hope this uh, this novel becomes a, a movie at some point. But it's the fact that you know it used to be back in the day. Oh, did you hear the latest news? Actually, I'm just going to interrupt oh, you there. <laughs> there's more news about Netflix. Yeah. No. Yeah. So Cyber Cyberstorm, or maybe you already knew this, but I don't think I announced it. But Cyberstorm, <clears throat> which was the book that just preceded, which is actually the the prequel to to Darknet, was picked up by Netflix, um, and it's got um, Sebastian Hoffman directing. It's got a producer. We got Matt Lopez did the the screenplay for it. Uh, so it's all signed and 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 done, and uh, and so that's congratulations. Be, that yeah, is just yeah. fantastic. So we're we're working on getting Darknet into. Uh, Onto Netflix as well, and um, I've got that my, is so awesome. And uh, my book Polar Vortex, I'm working with Muse Entertainment, which is the biggest film company in Canada. They've optioned it, and we have <clears throat> um, William William Lauren, who's the guy that is the showrunner for V Wars on Netflix. Anyway, he's signed on, and we were doing an eight part um, an eight parts uh, series for first uh, for first uh, season, I guess, of Polar Vortex, which is another one. So. Wow. We're working on getting that into streaming services. That is as well. that is so fantastic. I mean, both of those are are really really great stories. I mean, I I think I'll be interested to see what they do with Polar Vortex. That's that seems to me like it would be they would have to they would ha it would be more difficult to kind of 
bottle that lightning uh, into you know into that form because it would have to be pretty long to get it right it's uh to do it eight eight episodes uh but there is opportunity in there to do you know the you know like all the characters like what you know i kind of designed that book to be you know they get stranded it's air, it's it's the classic uh which is almost a genre in itself now airline disappearing somewhere yes. yeah but airline disappears over the north pole and then um giving a little bit away by saying the crashes and then you have a group of survivors and each one of the survivors has kind of secrets on the other one and then they realize that it wasn't just a random accident, that it was somebody on the airplane caused it to be crashed. And then who did it? Why did they do it? And then who's hunting them? You know, it's on, really, really good. It's yeah. so, so, so good. They, they're going to have to, they would have to have a lot of special effects on that one, though, to get it right. Well, I mean, we, I'm not going to say we why. But yeah, <laughs> I, I talked with the, with the film, with the film people and they're like, yeah, we, you know, we could just go up to, uh, we're talking about doing it in um, Lac Saint-Jean because uh, Lac Saint-Jean, you have a town. Is not too far away, but if you just go out over the ice a little bit, you can get to a point where there's just ice in all directions, you know, in the middle wow. of the winter. Um, and that's not too distant. And I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a place where you could film something like that. It would feel wow. like you're on the North Pole. Rather than, that's funny, rather than James Bay? I mean, James Bay is, is even more remote. I mean, to get up there, you really, um, you know, like to Lac Saint-Jean, there's, you know, it's, it's whatever, five, five, six hours from Montreal, and there's a town there, and there's resources, and, you know. Yeah. yeah, but if if you got up to if you got up to uh, to James Bay, you could actually they're actual they're actual polar bears. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm, you know where I'm going with this, <laughs> and you can get close it's to them. A dangerous. You can get close yeah. to polar bears, which is important to the book. But uh, but um, wow, that's that's so exciting. I mean, Cyberstorm is just one of the most nail biting, uncomfortable anxiety. It, it, that that was such a tense tense book it just it just does not let up at certain points it just keeps the tension very 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 high it's uh cyberstorm seems to me like it it is almost a screenplay already like you don't really have to do that much to like yeah. make it into a screenplay it's it it's already has the feel of a movie it's it's cinematic you could really sort of see it yeah well i haven't i haven't checked out the latest version of the script so so hopefully it uh that is something uh, true to it but uh we'll, yeah and we'll it's see it's very out. it's also very interesting considering all of the um sort of conspiracy theories some of them quite plausible that we now have about you know the coronavirus and how it looks like um the coronavirus you know we we don't really know where whether it came out of a lab by accident or whether it came from a wet market by accident but it seems you know from what i can see it seems pretty clear that however it got out into the population that was absolutely not intentional that was completely uh, just an accident however it it does look like um the chinese government knew knew that this was like a real problem um, and they they hid it from the world for a while, and so they banned all travel from Wuhan to the rest of China. They like completely sealed off, but they didn't ban any travel from Wuhan. So you could not go from Wuhan, where a friend of mine lives, and we were messaging through that that whole thing happening, um, and you couldn't go from Wuhan to Beijing, but you could go from Wuhan to Montreal. You can go from you could fly Wuhan to London to LA 
to New York, no problem whatsoever. So it was spreading all over the world from Wuhan. They weren't warning any anybody, right? Wow. So it uh, that would that would mesh quite nicely with. Uh, uh, actually, in, in actually, I don't want to give anything away about Cyberstorm. We, yes, we no, let's let's I mean, one not. I mean, actually, I mean, in, here I think you're trying to litigate the the Chinese as the uh, potential bad guys in the story that we are, you know, currently undergoing. Um, I, I have a feeling the story is a little bit more complex than that. Also, anytime that we try to have a high level conspiracy theory, since I've I've worked in corporations and I've worked with government, come to understand that there's very few people in corporation or government that are even you know, they're they're capable enough to run a really good conspiracy. They're just they're just so <laughs> disorganized. Like when you like say, oh, they did this or do that. I go, have you really worked with people in government? Because they're not this coordinated. Like they're just trying to save their asses, get some money, and like you know, and, and run something that they're really lazy at running. Like running high level conspiracies and doing stuff to try and end the rest of the world is really something they're not very good at. Except yeah. maybe the Russians. I, I think Putin's probably. He seems like he could be like you know, um, blow pump. You know what's his name? Uh, the, the, the you know stroking the white cat. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's the only he's the only super villain on the on the world scene right now. Yeah. Uh, apart apart from maybe uh, you know Kim Jong Kim Jong Il Jim Kim Jong Un. You know. He, yeah. I want to say anything bad about any super villains on here in case they're listening because I know you're probably like <laughs> translating this into North Korean and Russian as we yeah. speak right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's just. Probably the best book that I've ever read on this is uh, Neil Ferguson's book. It's The Square and the Tower, which came out uh, just a couple of years ago. And he just goes through like Sor- all of the Sauron's Tower. Kind of. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the Square and the Tower. And he goes through all these kind of famous conspiracy theories in history, uh, a lot of them. And he, he, he mostly agrees with you that most of the time um, conspir- conspiracies don't work because because of incompetence because somebody squeals because something but he actually does go through a number of really amazing conspiracies that um when you look into them were totally real and that um everybody kept their mouth shut and it worked really and we only found out about it like a hundred years later i think the only ones that really got that that really happened are the ones that involved the mafia like jimmy hoffa jfk you know because the mafia is like, shut up, and also shut up, and we kill everybody. They're very like business like about it. That's then that's not a conspiracy. That's just business. <laughs> well, the, the ones that he goes into the the biggest ones. That's is, my opinion. Anyway. Is how um, the basically the Russian Revolution and Lenin and you know all the the communists and stuff like that that they were heavily funded by the. Uh, by the German government because the German government wanted to undermine the ally of the kind of the French and the British. They wanted to undermine Russia so they didn't have to fight a two front war. So they put, um, they gave Lenin so much money. They got him safe passage uh, back to. Does that really count as a conspiracy though? Because that's kind of. I mean, that's that's just like normal operation, standard operating procedure for, you know, proxy war. And, and I mean, Germany and Russia have been attacking each other for the past thousand plus years. I don't know if you've ever traveled in Poland, but when I was in yeah. Poland, I had this crazy taxi driver. Very nice guy. A little bit crazy. Uh, driving me around. And he says, you know, our country every 50 years, our country gets destroyed by either Russia or by Germany. 
The Germans come across the border, destroy Poland, attack Russia. Fifty years later, the Russians storm across the border, destroy Poland, attack Germany. You know, and it's just like this wave going back and forth. Every now and then, you had like uh, you know when the, the, there was who was it? Uh, Wenceslas, he was the king that came up and, and and went and attacked Germany and Russia for Poland. I think <laughs> we have to go look up stuff in history, but it's very rare. But uh, but yeah, so that. I'm not even sure that would count as a conspiracy theory. in my books. That's kind of like just the Germans and the Russians, you know, doing their regular, let's attack each other every now and then. Well, I guess for somebody who, who thinks about these kinds of elaborate plots for a living, it probably seems like, yeah, of course. But I know that I've... Not there quite are on the same scale as Pizzagate. There are, com, uh, there are communists that I grew up with, like in, in Verdun and stuff like that, and points in Charles, old school like socialists and communists, who would just get, you know, red in the face. They would get so angry when anybody even brought up this this conspiracy because they thought that this sort of took away from from the magic of the of the revolution. That this was the people rising up and and to feel like they were basically just useful idiots on the pay of the German government that, uh, and, and the other, the other one that he, he talks about in the, the square in the tower, um, is basically the rise of Wahhabi Islamism. He says Wahhabi Islamism was heavily, heavily Saudi funded Arabia? by, uh, by the British government and by like that they were trying to sort of, they were trying to undermine their, um, they're very well. They were funded by Saudi Arabia oil money later on, but Wahhabism initially, is the center of, is, that's is where it started. Saudi, right? yeah. But it was spread, and is, Islamism was spread very much uh, by just, people who were trying to undermine, what, um, you know, various kinds of uh, colonial powers. Right? One, one in a long list of unintentional blowbacks by Western governments. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens again and again. But it's in uh, this Bin Laden guy, he looks yeah. like he'll help us in Afghanistan. <laughs> I watch. I don't know if you no. saw that that documentary. <laughs> and that's not a conspiracy. About uh, uh, Khashoggi, the yeah, yeah. Saudi journalist Saudi who was journalist. like chopped into pieces by that's very um, sad, yeah. MBS and like. So I don't know if you've seen. There's a documentary that just came out. It's on. Uh, we saw it on Crave. It is absolutely gripping, but it goes. It's all about him and and his kind of trajectory. And I I didn't know very much about him except for the fact that he was. Uh, a journalist who was well, yeah, um, <laughs> that he was a journalist and that he was um, a speaking out against like the new policies of the Saudi government and st- stuff like that. You would have never heard of him if he hadn't ended up like. But this. turns mean, out, very this sad. dude, he made his career in uh, in Saudi Arabia, particularly, but in the basically in the Arab world and in the Islamic world largely. Because he was besties with Osama bin Laden, he was there with Osama bin Laden in um, Afghanistan. He was his Boswell, basically, who was like right by his side, was writing all these like very adoring stories about him. And there's all these pictures of him with Osama bin Laden when they're both like young and idealistic, and they're you know fighting against the Soviets in Afghanistan and stuff like that. And like, oh, uh, surprised he made it that long. I mean. The entire Obama administration didn't send in one drone strike to take him out. <laughs> they did. They didn't. Uh, but that's, that's surprising. He managed to, Anybody pictured with Osama bin Laden, I think, would have been just a smoking crater by the end of the eight years. He was not only he was like really good friends with Osama bin Laden. Um, exactly. They were. He kind of had a huge amount of admiration for him. But then after September 11th, 
he was completely horrified by this and he actually he he denounced him publicly a lot and he said uh he has you know my friend has become this poisoner of the youth and this corrupter and he's filling young people with with hatred and and all this stuff so uh yeah he had a just a, a very fascinating like story arc like that guy right but but you know talking about uh sort of things that blow back on people so so in uh, in in darknet you have people creating this this ai which is going to which and and by the way i love it that in the novel this is something that is created to deal with uh, the fact that people find it really annoying to have to respond to all this email they get and phone calls and meetings. And so they, I, I thought at one point when I was in your novel, I, I thought of that movie. It's not a very good movie, but it's an interesting concept. The Adam Sandler movie where he has like a universal remote oh, yeah. and he can like fast forward over fights with his wife. He can like fast forward over hangovers. He can like, he can fast, he can fast forward all all the parts of life that he doesn't like. You ever that that movie? Yeah, yeah click, he, I think it was called. It was it click? Yeah. yeah, and he he kind of, but this you know leads to some pretty bad consequences. But well, it's, we're we're already trying to use bots. I mean, if you go on um, uh, on Google, you know, Gmail now they've got autoresponders for, you know, if it's in this thing, you know, this you've got here's here's an automated and it starts to generate auto responses. And and now even when you're typing, it types in words for you. Like, do you want to type this? You hit tab and it puts the words in for you. So they're already putting the words in your mouth and it's getting, you know, we're getting further and further along to that thing. And there's already bots. I can like I've got a bot on my on my Facebook account that if somebody says, oh, where can I get your book? Darknet, like the thing will automatically respond and say, go look on Amazon. You know, so we've already got those bots already responding for us. Um, and I was taking it just one step further. Somebody would have like an autoresponder saying, I want you to pretend like you're you're John. Hey, uh, you know you're you're John, and I want you to go and and write an email response to that, and then you don't have and you go you you go and review them. You go even one step further where somebody calls you, you don't have to answer the phone, and they say, "Hey, it's Matt. Yeah, what's going on?" And then if it's anything important, it'll be like, "I can, can I call you back?" And then the machine would say, "Hey, blah blah blah, just call it something important. You need to call them back with this, whatever you know." And it can simulate that it's actually talking to you and all that sort of stuff. So. That's uh, and we're not far from that. I think in 2015 was the first time that a machine beat the Turing test, which is the Turing test for anybody that hasn't uh, looked it up is the idea that if a black box comes down from space, lands in front of you, and then you have a conversation with it. And in the Turing test that that he originally designed it was, is you type something into a keyboard, and then you know a, a message comes back from it. You have a conversation. If you cannot decide whether it's a person you're having a conversation with in the box, is the thing inside the box a person? And then, like, or and the ultimate test is: Would you be willing to drop a bomb on top of the box? So if you're sitting there typing and talking and typing and talking back and forth with it for an hour or two, and you're not willing to drop a bomb on the box, then ergo, it must be a person. The interesting part of that for Turing, as a, as somebody dealing in or the the idea of machine learning and artificial intelligence, kind of the father of that is then if that thing inside the box turns out not to be a human being but is a machine, should that machine count as a person, quote-unquote, with the same type of rights and, and you know legal obligations that we would assign to people in, in, in law? And that's kind of the interesting track I was taking in this book, that we, we don't assign legal rights to a person unless we uh, – or, or to a machine 
unless that machine say is owned by a corporation and now the corporation actually would have the same legal rights as you and me so machines can all already become legal people like we this whole thing of should we even give them rights can be sidestepped by just incorporating every piece of machine learning algorithm and now it has legal rights as a corporation it's i mean i found that incredibly creepy the the idea that that let's say somebody could go onto onto youtube or other places where there's videotape of of me talking let's say right and they could just upload or you know download all of that and could kind of get a, a repertoire of the way in which i i say certain sounds and the way my mouth they already right, do that right and they can i do that I think and it's then, called tiktok and then, <laughs> and then that they could then um call up like in the in the novel those instances where like they, they can call up like a, a a mother or like a son or a daughter or a friend and pretend to be you and just have like um, the machine says, "Hey, could you send? Can you send Luke over to the next room? Yeah, you know, can as if you you're calling do... on? It can spoof your cell phone and give a phone call from the father saying, "Hey, Luke wants to go out and play baseball. Can you send him outside?" And then there's the bad guys waiting outside to, you know, to kidnap someone. And it's not even the bad guys. The bad guys in the book of being contracted by the machine. So the machine has a phone call with them and says, "Look, I'll give you ten thousand bucks if you go." kidnap this kid who's going to be outside the room and then the machine calls the place like it's doing all of these things but in the book it's not doing them because it's trying to take over the world because it's evil it has this it's actually just trying to earn a larger and larger profit for its company and it starts to learn that it can do things like get contracts with hitmen and do other things that are kind of off the books but that are very effective in, in driving up its profit on certain things so that's that's its defining <laughs> modus operandi. that's its that's its desire it wants to keep creating profit the other thing that I get into in the book is that this machine, while it sounds evil, is also not any different than other corporations. Like a corporation, you can say corporations are evil, we should have ethical corporations, but who owns those corporations? It's us, right? And the only directive for a corporation is to generate profit. So corporations already do evil things and kill people. Like, you know, there's hundreds of examples, like the one in India where, you know, the corporation uh, spills Bhopal all of the Bhopal, yeah, yeah. They, and it kills hundreds of people. There, this corporation run by people, but, but basically run by an algorithm to try and generate profits, goes and does something that kills hundreds of people. And then you don't get rid of the corporation. It doesn't really have any negative impact apart from losing a little bit of profit. Um, these things are designed to generate as much profit as poss possible. Uh, and the other analogy that I take in this in this book is that um, a corporation such as this, it's okay, it, it kills people and it's only interested in its own self-interest, so it acts like a psychopath. But most of our large corporations are actually run by psychopaths, as well as most of our, you know, our our um our high-ranking politicians and people like doctors are probably they're probably not sociopaths. They're not violent sociopaths, but they are sociopaths that have their own, they don't have like the, the same sort of empathic reasoning that we do. And so I was drawing a parallel between intelligent machines and sociopaths, and that's the whole sort of stuff. In fact, the book starts off with talking about sociopaths, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 very, very interesting. It it actually that part of the book, you know, when he's talking about his father and the interactions with his father. His father's so, a psychopath. Yeah, his yeah. father's like a total um it it reminded me of something that um this this point that Nassim Nicholas Taleb makes in one of his books, which I just think is it's one of those things like when you when you hear it, you're just like, oh my God, that actually makes so much sense. He says, you know, we we generally think speaking think that 
people who are really good at something are good at some are good at that because they have extraordinary virtues or aptitudes or strengths and that's what makes them great and he says uh actually that's not true he said usually when people are really good at something it's because of an absence yes okay they have like certain strengths but that's not what is like setting them apart from the pack it's an absence so he says that to be a really good criminal uh, you have to have an absence of empathy because if you have too much empathy, it's going to get get in the way of you being a good criminal, right? And he says, to be a really good academic, you have to have an absence of common sense. Because if you have too much common sense, it's going to get a, in the way of your theoretical constructs that are, you're going to be like, ah, oh, that can't be true, right? So, and he goes through all these different things that, that actually require well, an well, absence. What do you have to, what do you have to and, have an absence of to be a good writer? I'm wondering what I'm lacking. Um, <laughs> sort of cupidity, perhaps. Cupidity? Yeah. <laughs> like a, I don't even know what that it, is. It, it, I don't have a, much of it. Don't an avariciousness, <laughs> like a desire for money, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or, or desire to see other people on a regular basis or to, to be outside in the sun. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's a, it's uh, definitely there's a self-flagellation element of it. which I There, I think, that. I don't know, to be a... I would say to be um, to be a writer the way you are, my my I would say that um, you you probably have to be somebody that is pretty far on the introverted side of things. I think if you're even if you're even if you're even slightly extroverted, um, I think uh, the life of a writer will will drive you to to just horrible despair because you, you have to be comfortable. I think with spending a lot of time um, by yourself, that seems to me like uh, one of them. Uh, what else writer? I think. Uh, Interesting. Absence. I, I'm not sure. I can't think of like mm -hmm. nothing jumps out at, at well, me. Well, I'll, I'll let you think about this till our what next would conversation. You, what would you think? If we, if we assume I, that Taleb's right about this. I, I don't know. You know, I know a lot of writers. Uh, and my only observation of a common thread that runs between all the writers that I know is that they're a mixed bag of nuts. They're just all kinds of... The, the one thing that I've observed, actually, from all writers is almost no writers actually studied writing or any type of English language. <laughs> like yes. Almost no success. Yeah. Right, I mean, by that, I mean writers that write, like, you know, very successful fiction and yeah. they're making a good living off it. They tend to be people that come from all walks of life and sort of fell backwards into it. And they're just, they, they end up being good storytellers. And I'm not sure that, that storytelling, although, I mean, there's things in creative writing you can take, but story, people who are good storytellers, you know, you run into them. They're the guy at the, you know, selling secondhand cars and he could be an incredible storyteller. And if he accidentally fell into writing books, he might become this incredible, you know, um, writer just because you can tell these and you don't actually have to be a very good writer to be a good storyteller and and actually readers don't really care about writing that much a little bit but they care more about like the story and the characters and the and the punchline and the you know that's the stuff that people really care about so yeah i mean that that was um uh, you know i had a friend of mine aaron haspel was on the on the podcast uh, right after tom wolf died and he's uh he just absolutely he, he wrote this gorgeous eulogy to, to tom wolf after he died and i was like you got to come on the podcast and let's let's talk about tom wolf and we we talked for like two hours about tom wolf but he said uh 
you know, one of the really great insights that Tom Wolf had as a writer is he said, you know, we we've been sold uh, we've been sold a bill of goods with with modern art and and modernism, this idea that it's just uh, the writerly art as this kind of high art that if if you are sufficiently like amazing as a writer, you can talk about like a red wheelbarrow for for 200 pages and, and people are going to love it because you're just so amazing or you can just kind of introspect for two and he said uh tom wolf called bullshit on that and, and tom wolf said that uh, really great writing is is basically 90 percent story and 10 percent uh style yeah. and he's like if you if you have a really good story that's gonna be something people want to want to hear they want to that's because it's a cool story like you know we were talking on the way here we were talking about like yeah so then uh then my friend mike got like stalked by like a mountain lion and he was like chase after it and this other guy he like my cousin it came after him and he barely got to his suv on vancouver island and the thing was like walking on the bridge and he saw its big balls swinging behind it as it was walking away you from it. You didn't tell me about the balls. I didn't tell you the balls. The balls were coming. Uh, I was thinking about fuzzy dice in your, in your car. But he, like, yeah, I mean, if you have, like, a really cool story, right, then, you know, the, the style, knowing how to present it, which you have kind of uh, perfected that kind of art of kind of presentation and and there is a sort of a formula, perhaps, or a couple of formulas. I, I, I could describe my writing. My so writing what's form. what's the formula? <laughs> well, I was going to say that I think I think at at base, like human beings are storytellers. In fact, we communicate by stories. Like if you go home tonight from doing whatever you're doing out there, whoever's listening to this, you're going to talk to your wife, your partner, or you know your friend when you get and you say, "Hey, I, I did this today, and I did that." And, but you're going to frame that in terms of a story. And you, usually those stories have like a surprising conclusion. Like when you told me about the the the, the cougar today, yeah. the surprising conclusion was he did all of that, but it was because the guy had just messed with his cubs. So a story needs to have like oh a beginning. Oh, my God, you're totally right. The surprising a beginning, conclusion. Yeah. You know, the middle, and then a surprising conclusion that you didn't expect. And that's the format of every story. And everybody that tells a story, whether you sit down at a bar, you sit down anywhere, you do anything – it's always the beginning, the setup, and then you need to have a satisfying, uh, a satisfying payoff at the end, and then you have a laugh, and that's and that's how we communicate everything. Like we, even you sit down around fire. I'm sure cavemen, when they sat down around fires two thousand years ago, they were telling stories around the campfire. When you meet somebody in the morning, you tell them a story. We're always telling stories, and so when we read books, when we watch movies, all we're doing is we're watching an encapsulated version of storytelling, which is how we communicate. You know, all the time. That's the natural. And a lot of the like the hero uh, journey, which is the cla- one of the classic formats for a story, is just encapsulating the standard way that we communicate stories to each other. Because we're always the heroes in all of our stories, and that's why when you write a book or you write a movie, you're trying to let the main character, you're trying to let the viewer or the reader um, uh, associate or become, you know, the person in the story, become that, become that hero. Because we're always we're always the hero in our own story. Um, <clears throat> So that's that's one observation. Um, as for writing, yeah, I've got three. And what I'm writing, I'll give you my my four rules for writing. I think it's called the DEER or the DAM, the D-W-E-R. Anyway, the D stands for delay answering mysteries. So if you're writing a book, writing a story, you want to bring up as many mysteries as you can, especially the central mystery, and then delay answering it as long as possible. 
it's it's like that in the uh, in the middle of the Rocky Horror, you know, and he says anticipation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anticipation is what keeps you on the hook for as long as possible, yeah. right? So you got to create mysteries, and you got to create that first mystery. Usually, in the first scene, there's this thing that happens, and you don't answer it all the way to the last page on the last chapter, because as soon as you answer that question the reader stops reading because the, the mystery is answered. So the first one is delay answering mysteries. Second rule that I use is uh, L-E-L-L-E, which is enter late, leave early. And that means in a scene, you don't say I'm you driving there and you get out of the car and, you bought a, and then they get up the stairs and then they start questioning the suspect. I start the scene in the middle of questioning the suspect. I leave a whole bunch of that scene unanswered. Now there's mystery You're right in the middle of a conversation and then you leave the scene halfway in the middle of a question. So now there's another mystery that's created. And now they need to go to the next chapter to answer it. So it's enter late, leave early. Um, I also use... Academic writing would be so much better if they followed this. <laughs> no, because academic writing, they spend so much time building up to what they want to talk about. Like the introduction takes so long that most people have just put the thing down by then. Okay, so enter, more. enter uh, late, exit early. Well, delay answering mysteries, enter late, leave early. <clears throat> then I use the one called ELM, E-L-M, which is emotion, logic, and moral. So whenever something happens to a character, they have, boom, the emotion, like somebody jumps out and surprises them. And it's like, fuck off, you know, like, what did you? And then you have logic, you know, okay, they jumped out because they were trying to surprise me. And, you know, even though they kind of surprised me and, and it was really unpleasant, they were just trying to be nice. And then... Uh, and then moral, you know, they would go back and think, oh, well, he was, you know, beaten as a child and he does this type of behavior because of whatever and you moralize the whole thing. And so as you're going through a, a story and you're going through the person's head, I often do these circles of emotion, logic, moral, emotion, logic, moral to, to have the character. And that allows you to flesh out what the character's internal compasses are, like what are their morals? What are their the way they think about logic? How do they react to things emotionally? If somebody jumps out, do they just not react or do they jump and get scared? You know, so that allows you to, to reflect on the characters in the book. Um, and then the last one is uh, R. Oh, yeah, Rue, R-U-E, which is the most important one, which is resist the urge to explain. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a writer, you constantly have this urge to explain everything that's happening instead of just letting the character observe things and then either leaving things as mysteries, which then you can answer later, or more importantly, letting the reader use their own brain to figure it out. The more you engage the reader to figure things out in your books, the more they're engaging their brain and the more that they feel like they're figuring out the mystery and the puzzle themselves. Because part of the, part of the, um, the pleasure that a reader gets, it's kind of like a crossword puzzle. You start off you start off with these mysteries and the reader's like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Oh, oh. And then when you surprise them, they go, oh, I didn't expect that. And now it becomes more fun and more interesting. They're trying to put this together. Um, I kind of liken actually the type of books I write. It's like doing up-close magic. So you know when a, a, um, a magician shows you cards? You know, pick a card, any card. Take a card and then they do something else and then they go like this and then they blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden they pick the card out of their ass somehow or something. Yeah. How did you do that? That's impossible. And, but each one of those up close magic tricks is a very, it's a sequence of events. It's a whole thing that's gone into it. Um, and so each book actually I try to design as its own up close magic trick. Like here's all the characters, here's everything. I'm laying it all out for you and you're going to guess, you know, how I do this. And then I got pull the card out of the end 
And then if it surprises you, you go, oh, how did you do that? But the difference between the up-close magic trick and my book is that when, you, when I show you the card at the end, you've got to say, oh, I understand how all of that happened now. And it's all got to tie together in a nice loop. And then it becomes very satisfying. And then we're done. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing. See, that's my it, writing in a nutshell. Tom, Tom Wolf says says the same thing at one point. He he says like if you if you tell the reader two plus two is equal to four, uh, he's gonna be bored with you. But he said if you if you just lay it out there and you let the reader use their uh, brain, like add two plus two and four, I go aha! I now feel really clever that they've just figured yeah, something out. Then they love you because you've you've made them feel clever to resist the urge to explain that yeah make, that makes it compelling for the reason that would that a number of those rules would be really hard for me to follow because i've been teaching for so long but none of them would be harder for me to follow than the last i would just because i i'm i'm uh you know there's that that annoying character in uh it's one of tom wolf's books uh, it's, it's based on leonard bernstein and he he calls him like uh, like Lenny the explainer or something like that. <laughs> he's, he's always explaining stuff. It's yeah. If you're, if you're a, like a, a prof or teacher, that just becomes like second nature. Yeah. And I'm sure it well, makes you a terrible not... writer. <laughs> I'm like, of, uh, it would just not work at all. You should go and write your own books. I've, yeah. given, you, I've given you all the, all the instructions that anybody ever needs. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like anything. It's, you can you can know the instructions. You know Michael Jordan can tell you how to do a perfect layup, but yeah, try and do it. It's 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 often much harder to actually uh, do uh, things. You know, there's the, a little there's a little technique involved. Yeah, I know there's there's a lot. I mean, I I don't think it I don't think it would be easy for somebody. There's a lot of people who are trying to make it as writers and are not being. I mean, you've been uh, there's, extremely there's... extremely. I mean, part of I mean, we didn't talk about this last time, but. One of the things that I think is fascinating about your career as a writer is that, like, not only have you managed to be really, really successful, uh, financially successful, fabulously successful as a writer, uh, which is hard to do, you know, for for any writer, but you've also managed to do it by going around the gatekeepers, by going around the the publishing companies that normally uh, that. You know, I mean, now because you're so famous and you've so, sold so many millions and millions of copies of books, now uh, you have publishers that want to, you know, want to like sign you. But you originally did this through the self-publishing route, which is just I I know so many uh, people that I grew up with who wanted to be writers who that would just never occur to them. Like, it's just like, oh, that that just isn't done. Like, you're just like, somehow you're not allowed to do that. It's as yeah, if, I think, I think like, it, you're fighting against a guy who's eight feet tall and what, I'm not allowed to kick him in the balls? Like, like it would just, it would never, no, that's not honorable. Like, well, like, he's eight feet tall. Like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to, like, get this guy down. Yeah, I've, I've always been very practical. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that when I started in 2012, which is, you know, it's only about eight years ago since I published my first novel, that self-publishing was just sort of up and coming. Um, and I, but I did go and try. I mean, I talked to like a hundred publishers and agents before I got started and nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. Um, and said my first book, Atopia would be, you know, a failure and no would want to read it. And it's, so far it's sold like 150,000 copies. So. And it looks like Black Mirror stole a lot of your ideas. Yeah. That's what I like to think. Um, well, it's, you know, 
I think they you're onto something. Did. I don't think that's paranoia. I think you're onto something because there are like a bunch. Of, I've now read all of your stuff, and I there are a lot of really striking. Atopia was a long time ago. That was way before Black Mirror. Yeah, uh, and and um, ITV Studios did did a, um, a film option, TV option on Atopia um, some years ago. So they so, had access to the ideas. Well, I mean, anybody can read a book. It says you don't really have any. Um, I don't know. I you know I sort of let that one slide under the bridge a long time ago. Yeah, well, I, I'm not I'm not a huge reader in sci-fi. That's not like a genre that I'm really. I mean, I do read some of it, but um, but I wonder. I actually I sent my he's probably listening. My friend Andrew, um, I sent him a copy of uh, of that of Ethiopia, and I said like because he is like a massive consumer of sci-fi. Like he's read, he's read everything of significance in sci-fi. He's such a big reader of that genre. And he, um, so he would know more. I said, I think this is actually, look at the date when this came out. I said, I think this actually was cribbed. I mean, like, cause I, I'm not familiar with these ideas in any other book. So I'm interested to see like what he says, but I suspect he's going to yeah, conclude it, the same thing that it, Atopia had some pretty unique ideas in it. I said, I think out of all my books, although that one's almost the least read somehow, um, it might be the one that stands the test of time. And I'm actually going to revisit some of the stuff that I had in that uh, in that book and some up- upcoming novels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's pretty it, it's a, it's a freaky question, but it's sort of pivoting pivoting back to Darknet for a minute. So yeah. the I just you know as I said to you uh, in the the ride up to the studio, I just finished uh watching the seventh season of homeland and uh and half the the second half of the sixth season and it's it's very interesting it's all about kind of russian meddling in american politics and um active measures and and fake news and these not even fiction anymore uh, yeah and these like the troll farms and things like that and you know how how all of this works and uh i'm wondering like if the kind of things, the technologies that you're describing in Darknet, if they become really kind of commonplace, is there any way, like, can you imagine any antidote to this? Like, is there any way to, like in the novel, I I remember there's people that they say, you know, make sure if you talk to me on the phone, ask me very like specific questions. Like, don't just assume it's me. Ask me specific questions about, uh, things that happened in the past. Things that, that happened in the past. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what the in in the book when you when they couldn't tell if somebody was real or not over the phone, they started to say like, just ask me really specific things that only happened between you and I. And, you know, <clears throat> to the extent. I mean, the problem with that is nowadays that Facebook and you know and whatever they've got all of your memories, like every picture that you've ever taken is on online and digital. In theory, a machine might be able to figure out everywhere you've been on vacation and all the things you did. Um, you know, those little moments when you're away from the machines. But nowadays, when are you ever away from a machine? Like what intimate conversation have you had where there hasn't been a cell phone in the room? Uh, because they definitely are listening. And I'm not just trying to be like, how many people out there have been talking about something with your wife or you know partner? And then you open your phone up and there's an advertisement for, you know, hey, I wanted to go on a fishing trip. And then there's an ad for a fishing trip on your phone. Like, tell me that they're not listening to you. And I'm not just being paranoid. I'm sure that they are actively listening and taking information in even though they're not supposed to be and they would argue that maybe it was a mistake or something yeah i mean i i disable 
um, Siri, like on my phones and I, I disable it and I, you know, I make sure that it's, I don't use it ever, but I had this uh, experience. This was, it was really random. It was a, a couple of months ago where something happened. I dropped my phone and somehow the, the flashlight went on like really, really bright and I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. And it was it was an awkward situation. And then your phone started uh, speaking to you. In we Russian. were driving and stuff like that. And it was an awkward situation. And so finally, I just I yelled, uh, you know, Siri, uh, turn off flashlight, and flashlight went off. And I was like, Oh my god, my fucking phone is listening to me all the time. <laughs> like, I just it, it, it even though I never used this function, it's basically ready to await the master's voice <laughs> like and, at any time and to do that it has to actively be listening to you at all times right yes. waiting so waiting for somebody's tapping into that like you know i know they say that they're not doing that but they said they weren't doing a lot of other things i'm not trying to be too conspiracy minded but um yeah in the book in the end of it actually the way that they stopped them was by using mohawk cyber warriors which is one of my favorite parts <laughs> I actually, I brought the I brought the book back to with the ending of the book. I brought it back to Montreal because usually I write books that are based in the U.S., and, which is really playing up to my audience because ninety percent of my audience is in the U.S. But I brought it back to uh, the Catawagi Reserve in um, uh, in Montreal, and actually, the I, I asked the elders when I was writing this book. I was very sensitive actually to to including that community in the book, and I actually went to Catawagi and talked to some of the uh, the Mohawk elders and said, "Listen, I'm writing this book. I want to include." something about the Mohawks in here. Are you okay with that? And they said, well, you know, we don't want anything in a negative light and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I involved them. I went, they invited me to some of the powwows. Um, and I talked to a lot of the people, uh, there and they gave me, and they gave me a tour. They actually have this great data center, um, where they, they host about three or 400 online casinos because the elders of the Mohawk community here, instead of opening up a physical casino, they said, we're going to open up an online casino and run these online casinos for people all over the world. And now, actually, the Kanawagi Mohawk uh, uh, Council has servers all over the world in, in like Hong Kong and whatever where they're running these servers. And they've got, they've got the Mohawk Institute of Technology called MIT where they're actually training up young Mohawks to, to be uh, uh, educated in you know, running the data centers and the data centers around the world. And I thought this was a great initiative. And so... In the book, I used some of these graduates of the Mohawk Institute of Technology to become these cyber warriors in fighting off this AI. So it was a great, a great fun conclusion. The other, the other advantage being that the, the Mohawks actually did um, defend their territory some years ago when they had that standoff with the Canadian government. Yeah, so, the Yoka crisis. Yeah, the yeah. Yoka crisis. We actually had a, um, a precedent for the Mohawk warriors coming out with weapons and defending this site against the government trying to come in. Uh, so that was, uh, we had a physical battle as well as a cyber battle. So anybody wants to read Darknet? This is a fun, this is a fun book. It's, it's really, it's really, really great. And, you know, like with, with all of uh, Matthew Maver's novels, you can get the, the audiobook version and he actually gets, you know, really great actors to do the reading. So it's, it's a, it's fantastic to actually, I mean, my, my pattern these days is for books is I, I get the audiobook version and then I get the Kindle version. And so I alternate between reading some on my phone and then listening to some, uh, walking on the mountain, listening to, and I sort of alternate back and forth I do that, uh, that way. And it's, uh, it's, it works really well for me, but, uh, 
Yeah, I, I, your audiobooks are fantastic. They're really thank you very uh, much. You get really great people. Some people skimp on that, and it's it's really not a good idea because like so much of the, uh, so much of the money now is is in that right. People have audiobooks are bigger market or a bigger money making market than than ebooks and print. I think it's it's uh it's pretty. Is it really that yeah. big now? Most of the authors that I know make more money on audiobooks than they do on everything else combined. That's amazing. That's amazing. I I saw. I wanted to make sure I asked you this. You know, before I forgot. There's this uh, documentary on Netflix, which you know, everybody's been talking about the the social dilemma, which is all of these people like you who worked in tech and then kind of got out of it, you know, because they just got sick of it or disillusioned and things like that. So a bunch of them have gotten together, uh, Tristan Harris and and a bunch of other people who are. Uh, people who were uh, early founders of Facebook and Twitter and uh, Google and various things. They've and the documentary is is very scary, and it's all about how um, how these things work and how the AI, how the algorithms are gathering your information and how they they use all the same technology that's used in uh, casinos to keep you. Yeah, the slots to keep you and and all this stuff and how it's destroying um, us. The, us and political <laughs> life and how it's it's vastly increased polarization and how like they they come out with all these crazy stats there how it was um, it was com- it was very normal uh, even in the 1950s and 60s when there were huge political divisions over lots of things including like the civil rights movement and stuff. It was totally normal for people who were uh, progressives, conservatives, uh, liberals, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans and states. It was totally normal for people like that to get along with each other very well, to be married to somebody who was the other, to have friends, to families had all these divisions. And now uh, today, people regularly uh, cut off connection with uh, people have actually. There's all sorts of people in in the states that have filed for divorce because they they don't like their wife's politics or their husband's politics, and they and people are defra. I even see this like um, in in my family and in my wife's family, where people who have gotten along at family gatherings for decades, they've managed to over you know get get past big differences on religion, on politics, on all sorts of things. Suddenly, those divisions seem insurmountable, right? And and now people are like defriending each other, not talking to each other, not going to each other's weddings, not going to funerals, not going to like birthday parties. And so they they argue in the social dilemma that this is not an accident at all. That this is the business plan of these people. Well, I I think I think the effect might be accidental. I mean, I think the business plan, you know, they even have that uh, the. In, in the social dilemma, they have that section where they're at the Stanford Persuasion Lab. So they actually have designed a lab where they're hacking into, like, you know, the, the psychology of human beings to try and persuade you to do things, uh, which seems a little immoral, like, on the face of it. But they have to, you know, I, I mean, I've designed digital products in the past. I've had a few, uh, you know, I had a whole career in technology sector. Again, going back to corp- corporations are built to generate profits and online tools um, – you know, the West Coast model that evolved in the 90s and then in the aughts was how to get as many eyeballs as possible. And we had we had words like eyeballs and stickiness and, and you know, page reads. And so you're trying to increase all of those things, right? Uh, 
And so then we, you'd use all the tools at your disposal to try and get as many eyeballs as possible, how to get as many page reads, how to create stickiness, which would, you know, keep the person stuck to your, to your, to your app or to your, your web page as much as possible. And those were like the metrics that we used and that, you know, the, the, I don't know if it's exactly on purpose, but the net effect is that we designed basically digital cocaine. Like you, the apps and the, the web pages and the, the, the tools that came out of that, we designed stuff that was super addictive. Like you would want to look at it all day and you'd want to go back and check it all day. But we purposely designed it because we were trying to get things that got as many page reads and were as sticky and had as many eyeballs as possible. The net result, though, has been designing stuff that, you know, when you're talking about politics or other things, has the most outrageous claims, gets the most eyeballs, gets the most forwards, gets the most whatever. And so we started to take the things that are the most outrageous, whether they're true or not, end up getting disseminated as quickly and get all the likes and become viral. And, and like a virus, they're just infecting the population. And I think the net result is what we have now where we create a polarization of society just because we're taking the ideas that are the most you know, outlandish, uh, which are like conspiracy theories, seem to have, have started to flourish uh, in this new medium. Um, you know, so that's that's a net effect, whether it was on, I don't think it was ever on purpose, but it was just an, an, an effect of what happened. And it was certainly my generation of people in technology that were the guilty ones, although we were just trying to make a buck, you know, just like the corporation trying to make money. You know, is it evil? No, it's is it led to something evil? Well, it's led to, I think, the uh, the disintegration of society. In my personal opinion, I think things like social media should be regulated like, you know, a class one drug, like, you know, like, uh, I like cocaine too, but probably shouldn't, <laughs> probably shouldn't have it for breakfast in the morning, you know, and probably you shouldn't be reading social media in the morning either because it is like a class one drug. It's highly addictive. You love looking at it, but it eats up your day, it eats your brain and it destroys your relationships around you and probably you know, contributes to you doing, you know, if you're not performing at work and your relationships are getting destroyed, these are the classic signs of addiction to a drug, right? Yeah. And this is what's happening with social media. This thing is eating into our lives. It's, it's making our lives worse, right? Which is another classic sign of uh, addiction. I don't know exactly what needs to be done about it, but, but something, I was one of the people that helped build some of these things. And I also would add a voice to, there needs to be some regulation of these things, especially with regards to, to teenage children, which have all of the, or children in general who have problems with, um, you know, um, self-image, body image, and all that sort of stuff, which is being fueled into a frenzy. They're not sophisticated enough to, as an adult, you might say, hey, I want to go take ecstasy on the weekend, but should children be ingesting highly, um, highly toxic and highly addictive digital drugs when they're small? You know, probably not. You know, I don't think that it's a good thing. Um. Yeah, well, I wanted to sort of close with this. It's a kind of an involved question, but without um, sort of betraying your your confidence, um, you you've told me, you know, when we were drinking in a bar <laughs> that uh, I've in never drank in a bar with you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that um, that you have at times been been asked by by certain intelligence organizations and various military to. Uh, You've participated in in kind of uh, war game activities, right? Where they yeah, war game sort exercises. of war game activities. So, I'm wondering if uh, if I was you know working for the the NSA or working for the CIA or the FBI or like that, and and I reached out to you and I said, uh, you know, you 
sort of think about all sorts of worst case scenarios for a living. This is what you do. Um, and you're very good at it. If you were to, if, if somebody were to come to you and say, what are a couple of ways that the upcoming election, which is in what, like 20 days now, it's, it's really, it's really soon. It's we're, uh, like what, like two and a half weeks. You can see the wave darkening the horizon. Yeah. Like you can, uh, three, like get if, away if from I the, came, get if, away from the beach. Yeah, right. If um, if I were to come to you and say, okay, what are a couple of ways in which this um, this could go sideways? Um, what would you say are the some of the scenarios that you can imagine? Worst case scenarios, uh, ways in which the the election uh, could be hacked or the aftermath could be hacked. Something to create maximum uh, disorder and problems. Like what would you, with your, you know, anxious brain that can think of these really horrible scenarios? (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, this has been the the grist of, 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 you know, of of popular news. I wouldn't even call it news anymore. I'd call it sensationalist media. I'm going over all the things that could, uh, that could possibly go wrong in this election cycle. I mean, I mean, first of all, we're in Canada and we're talking about a foreign country. So we're talking about the election, you know, happening in a foreign country. We have like the rest of the world, I think an unhealthy preoccupation with what's happening uh, there, mostly because there is a, um, you know, a reality TV star that is, you know, in in the hot seat. And so he is very adept um, as much as you could criticize him, he is extremely adept at getting attention and getting eyeballs and um, and and conveying his message and staying in the top of the news cycle. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think you need to take it down a notch. And this is an election. I don't think that this guy is a, uh, he, he might be a, a wannabe authoritarian strongman, but he is really a, you know, he's got a, a small armband. Um, I don't. I think we need to take it down a notch and say that this really is just an election. The United States has checks and balances, and it has a lot of um, you know institutions which uh, may be rattled a little bit, and maybe they, it's good for them to be rattled every now and then so that they can see if the uh, if the structure is strong. But you know, I don't think that there's a lot of apocalyptic scenarios uh, coming coming up in this. Um, I do think a lot, you know, I, as much as I write apocalyptic scenarios, I do think that what we're seeing now is just a little bit. If you if you use the lens, even with social media, like when radio first came out there, were, if you go back and look at stories about radio, they're saying how it's corrupting the youth. And now information is passing faster and faster and how, you know, it's all this stuff is, you know, happening and how it's going to undermine society. And then a couple of years later, TV came out and then TV is corrupting the children, it's corrupting society, it's a new medium and blah, blah, blah. And then you have internet comes out and then internet is corrupting society and it's ruining children. And, you know, like, I think we all need to take a bit of a deep breath. Uh, I think there's some things like social media and other things. Uh, personally, I think things like social media should be turned into like a wiki social. Like there should be the thing that, social, that the Facebook is really great for is being able to stay in touch with everybody. But why can't you have an open source social media platform like a wiki social that would connect you with all of your friends and allow you to message and it would be completely encrypted and whatever and be an open source nonprofit platform 
we should all use that. You know, like I think, you know, I don't think social media itself inherently is evil, but the way that they're trying to exploit it for profits and us being the product instead of us buying the product or using, you know, a communal product, I think is part. So I think there are a lot of solutions to some of the things that we're talking about, specifically this election. I mean, I'm not really I, – I, I could throw in on that, but there's just so much grist in that mill of, of stuff. You know, he could do this. He could do that. But I think the institutions are strong enough. I don't think you're going to see any apocalyptic scenarios. I don't think he's going to try and crack open the nuclear football and do something dramatic before – you know, well, actually, that would be one scenario. You know, Donald Trump famously before the 2012 election said, you know, I think um, uh, Barack Obama is going to start another war just before the election because – uh, presidents always get a bump in popularity ratings just before, uh, if they, you know, if a war happens, because everybody tends to coalesce around the leader. 21 days to go or 20 days to go before the election, you know, I just hope that Donald Trump doesn't concoct a war and, and, and you know, invade Iran or something as a way of trying to boost his popularity. That would be, uh, that would be, you know, that would be disastrous, I think. Like starting a war with Iran or something would be, could be a way that he could boost his popularity rating and and which would be you know almost apocalyptic for the middle east and and the world going forward because it would just unleash things you know a pandora's box it would be very hard to put back in uh, and and if it was all born out of somebody like him trying to get his popularity instead of out of real security concerns because there are security concerns you know with regards to Iran and that part of the world but uh, if it, you know, if it was unleashed, if that Pandora's box was open just because he was trying to get popularity ratings, I think that could be, that would be one scenario that I think would be terrible for the world, which could lead to an unknown string of events happening following that. You know. Okay. And um, what about, you know, what about kind of uh, fake, you know, cause I was thinking about this when I was reviewing Darknet before, uh, before this, this interview and you know, I was imagining, like, what if you had all of these fake video footage that was leaked out, you know, yeah. and that sort of showed um, people's, let's say, you know, would, would send all of these things to um, to Trump supporters, let's say, uh, showing uh, ballot boxes being stuffed by by Democrats and stuff like that, and then sending similar kind of fake footage to democrats were showing people being like like with people in maga hats like preventing people from voting and like you know with with ar-15s and like pushing people away and that and that this video footage is all kind of manufactured wag the dog style and it's uh put out there as a way to try and um i think this is your apocalyptic scenario <laughs> yeah, I'm just well. I'm just wondering is is it actually like plausible? Oh yeah, I mean the I think the um, the law enforcement uh, world is still trying to grapple with what happened. Like deep fakes, like you can create a deep fake of you know take we could take like one minute of you talking on a whatever video I find online, and then use that to create a deep fake of you saying something else entirely. And I think. The law enforcement community is really grappling with how to handle that because there's a tsunami of this that, that probably will be coming um, in the hands of less scrupulous people. Um, I think there are digital, you know, there are ways to digitally go and, and, and look at the file and see if it has been digitally altered or, you know, 
but it's just sort of fine tooth comb sort of stuff. By the time, if you don't diffuse people from believing everything that they see online, um, then we are going to head into you know some pretty rough waters. So I think, I think it, I think the the thing that helps, I think the thing that people are starting to do because people are smart, you know, people aren't completely stupid. It's just educating them that things that you read online are not true, that there is fake stuff. Like, just because you see something that just that, that completely reinforces something that you already believe, you don't necessarily have to believe it. You should go and check it out. And I think that's an education, um, an educational process with the general public, which has already begun, which I think you're going to have to ensure that people use their own best judgment to think about these things. You know, I think at the end of the social dilemma, they're saying, well, how are we going to fix this? Can we fix it? And I think his, his answer at the end of it was, well, we have to. Because <laughs> if we don't fix this, you know, we're going to head into some very unpleasant waters. So. Yeah. Well, I guess I was trying to, I was talking with a friend of mine about your, your novels and uh, my friend Alex. And uh, he said, because I, I described you as as the sort of the patron saint of cautionary tales. And he said, well, isn't like, he more is like, like the Canterbury Tales? I said, isn't he, isn't he, yeah, like the Canterbury. And I, he said, well, isn't he more like an apostle of doom? <laughs> and I said, no, I said, like, Chris Hedges is an apostle of doom. It's like when he's describing all these horrible scenarios that he sees coming, he's, it's like Jeremiah or like the book of Revelation. It's like he actually, you get the sense that he feels like, you know, America has it coming. Like he kind of almost wants it to happen. Like he feels like this is righteous repayment, retribution. Exactly. I said, no, like uh, Matthew Vader, he's, he's more like, uh, it's more like cautionary tales, which is like, well, first of all, it's just, it's incredibly fun. I always have happy endings. Yeah. It's, it's always like, it's very like entertaining and fun, but to the extent to which you do have like a little bit of a didactic agenda, I feel like it is sort of, like if somebody tells you a really cool story about getting chased by a mountain lion, first of all, it's a cool story. It's really lo- it's really amazing to listen to, but it also kind of has a, a lesson, which is here's how to successfully survive a mountain lion attack, right? So your your stories have like kind of these horrible like possibilities, right, that are very plausible, uh, but but it's always like, hey, here's how you could survive this. Yes, we always have characters that survive. In fact, one of the rules of writing apocalyptic novels is if everybody dies, it makes for a very boring novel. <laughs> you know, unless you're Cormac McCarthy, then, you know, then you could write a book where everybody dies. And, or Dostoevsky it, or, but, or pretty yeah, much yeah. any depressed <laughs> Russian, you know, alcoholic. Seen, I had a meme last week that said, you know, if you're American, it says I'll die for, I'll die for freedom. And if you're, if you're French, you say I'll die for love. And if you're... Uh, British, you say, I die for honor. If you're Russian, you say, I'll die. (laughs) (laughs) That is the perfect way to finish. Nothing's going to top that. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I I really hope to to get you on again when the novel you're working on now is... Finishing Cyber War, which is all about drone warfare. We live in the age of drones. Yeah. So when when you're done with that, I would love to... uh, to have a conversation with that and time it so that uh, the the interview comes out, the episode comes out on the same day that your uh, your new novel comes out. I think out. that's okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, everybody out there. 
have a very nice day after listening to all of these apocalyptic scenarios. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>